faith of our fathers. Today, we feature Donald Gray Barnhouse. He pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania from 1927 until his death in 1960. An evangelist of incredible intellect, extraordinary language skills, and a true expositor of the scriptures. Barnhouse was a pioneer in preaching over the radio. His program was known as the Bible Study Hour. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a study on the knowledge of our position in Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How we rejoice in thy great faithfulness, in the assurance of the present possession of eternal life, in the knowledge that thou hast forever dealt with our sin. Bless now, we pray thee, thy truth to our hearts, that we may grow in the knowledge of our Savior and into his likeness. And we ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that we have established together that assurance is the practical foundation of experimental holiness, we can go on to the superstructure of Christian living. I'm quite convinced that no one can ever know biblical holiness until he knows that salvation is secure, that salvation never can be lost, that it is life eternal, the gift of the Father in regeneration, something that can never be withdrawn by God, or touched in the slightest by the enemy. When we are thus able to say, I know that I have eternal life, I know that I have the principle within upon which all the rest of the Christian life is to be constructed, we are able to go forward with God. In this portion of our study, then, we find that as assurance is the practical foundation of experimental holiness, so knowledge of our position in Christ is the practical road that leads to experimental holiness. At the moment a child comes into this world, there must be many readjustments made in its physical being to accommodate itself to its new environment. Lungs that have never breathed air must begin their lifelong work. Eyes must become accustomed to light. Many other parts of the body have adjustments to make. Some of these are the most important changes that come to the babe though there are many lesser ones in connection with nose, throat, and the very pores of the skin. I'm informed that a doctor has cataloged several score changes that take place in the life of a newborn babe in the first few seconds of its earthly life. If the child does not cry, the doctors do not know if life is in the body. Many a nurse has slapped a minute-old baby to cause the lungs to function. Many a child has been swung sharply by the foot to induce that first cry which is music to the attendants. So it is with one who is born again. When the life of God enters a believer's heart through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, there are many things which take place. First of all, however, we wish to hear the child cry. We want to witness that the breath of God has come into the being. This is why the scriptures demand that there be public confession of our faith in Christ. Some may think it possible for one to be a secret believer, but I find no basis for such a hope in the scriptures. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. 
If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In the early chapters of the Gospel of John, we have a striking contrast between two characters who are presented to us as the audience of two great messages given by the Lord Jesus. Nicodemus in the third chapter and the woman at the well in the fourth chapter were each privileged to hear for the first time wonderful truths concerning the work of God in the salvation of a soul. What a difference between these two, the man, the woman, the ruler of the Jews, the harlot, the one coming at midnight, the other being found by Christ at noon. Was Nicodemus a saved man? Did he come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his own personal savior from sin? All that we can say from the evidence is that we hope so. Oh yes, he heard the great message of the new birth. But no record is given us of any definite response that can be taken as positive proof that he had received the gift of eternal life. Many a man has heard great preaching and been a lost soul. It's true that we see Nicodemus in later moments of his life, but again, we're not fully satisfied. He intervened to, to defend the officers who were being berated by the Pharisees. In a truly liberal statement, he asked, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Ah, but there are many unsaved liberals who would say as much and more in the defense of civil liberties. This is no proof of salvation. And once again, when Christ had been crucified and his body was being prepared for burial, Nicodemus came with a magnificent gift of myrrh and aloes in accordance with the Jewish manner of burial and presented these spices for the embalming of the dead body of our Lord. All we can do is to hope that this was a gesture from a renewed heart. But we cannot know with certainty. Conscience has put many a stained glass window in a church without the giver being saved. But how different it is with the woman at the well. The Savior gently and deftly reveals to her heart her lost condition. She sees herself as a sinner, and she sees him as the Messiah Savior, and she leaves her water pot to go back up the hill to the gate of the city in order that she may cry, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And it is recorded that the Holy Spirit spoke through her renewed heart. And her first baby cry was sufficient to clothe the living word of God and bring life from the dead to some of those who heard. For we are told in the narrative that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him because of the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. Now we have no doubt about this child of God. She was not stillborn. She cries, she's alive. And as is the case in a newborn child of physical birth, there are very many things that take place in the life of the newborn child of the second birth, in the very moment in which God communicates the divine life through his grace. We saw in our first study that we have every right to accept as a fact the present possession of life from God. He gives us a life which he calls eternal life. It is the same life that we shall be living a million years hence, out in that eternity that will know nothing but God. The fact that the life we now have received and that which we shall always live are one and the same life may be illustrated by the following anecdote. 
My parents had been married for almost 20 years before I, their only son, was born. All of us know the anticipation of a son after there has been a line of girls in a family. And it would appear that my home was no exception to the rule. There was therefore some excitement among that household when I finally put in an appearance. And this was increased by the fact that I was the smallest of all the babies in our family. My father had been able to carry me even when I was several weeks old, lying on a pillow. It was merely the length of his forearm. And I rested quite comfortably, I am told, with my head above the palm of his hand and my feet in the crotch of his elbow. Yet none of you will doubt that the physical life which was in that little baby is the same physical life which is in me today as a man. There's a vast difference between my five or six pounds on that first day and my more than 220 pounds today, while my less than 20 inches have increased to about 75 of them. Yet it is the same life. Today I have greater control over it, and I have consciousness of it, but it's the same life. In exactly the same way, it's possible for me to say that the spiritual life which was planted within me at the moment of my new birth is the same spiritual life which I shall be living far out into eternity. When I first received the Lord Jesus Christ, I was counted as a babe in him and was told to desire the sincere milk of the word that I might grow. Then I became mature enough to lead other souls to Christ, and he put his power upon me as one of his witnesses. Then I began to learn that the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And I am confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in me will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. At that moment I shall see him and become like him, seeing him as he is. And all through eternity I shall learn to know him better. For this is life eternal, that we might know the only true God and Jesus Christ who was sent by him. That life is the life that I am now living. Yet it is not I, but Christ living in me. So that this very life which I now live in the flesh is eternal life, lived by the faith of the Son of God. Many Christians do not realize this in Christian life and practice. None of us, when we were babies, sat up suddenly in our carriages and said, I am alive, I am a human being. Cogito ergo sum, I think, and therefore I am. That knowledge was an unconscious development, and years passed before we were aware of our consciousness as a human being. So there are thousands of baby Christians who have never come to the moment of recognition of the fact that they are alive in Christ. A second result of my new birth is that by the receiving of eternal life, I become a child of God. Once a child of wrath, now a child of peace. Once a child of disobedience, now a child of faith and trust. Once a child of the devil, now a child of the heavenly father. There are some who hear these words who may still be conscious of continuing disobedience and who know that some of their ways, thoughts, and actions still merit the wrath of God. We will see further how we may be cleansed from all sin and how we may be maintained in a life of conscious trust and victory. Just here we must see the extent of our potential resources and most certainly our position as a child of God is one of them. Another result that is mine in the instant of my new birth is that my body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. It matters not whether that body has been racked with disease or wrecked by sin. 
The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, and the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes to dwell immediately within my heart and life, never more to leave. Our Lord has said, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Yet not only the Father and the Son, but also the Holy Spirit of adoption dwells within who cries out to the Father within our hearts, leading us in our prayer life and making intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And then still further, we find that the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior from sin, not only does the Godhead come to dwell within us, but we are said to be in God. We are in Christ from his death on the cross to his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. A score of blessings are to be found under this heading that, like the rest, are not to be gained through prayer or good works or church attendance or Bible study or effort of any kind which has its source in the human heart. Every item in the glorious inventory becomes the birthright of the believer the very instant he believes in his heart that God hath raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and confesses with his mouth this risen Jesus as his Lord. Let us illustrate this by a case in the Acts of the Apostles. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were put into prison. At the moment of their midnight service of prayer and praise to God, they were suddenly freed by the earthquake from their bonds, while the doors of the prison were opened, thus making escape possible. The keeper of the prison, and this is the important point for my illustration, was a man of violence. His whole character is summed up in the fact that in his dilemma, he sought to commit suicide. To all practical intents, he had already killed himself. Here then was a man with a vicious nature, living in the midst of a pagan world, in the heart of heathendom, in all its corruption. The probability is great that he was steeped in the practices of a vicious life. But he was instantly saved. Though the marks of depravity might have yet scarred his face and form, that body immediately became the temple of the living God. Though he had been a moment before a child of the devil, he was now a child of God. He was an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, a possessor of the very life of God, eternal life, since he had been made a partaker of the divine nature. All these things were his. His instantly, in the very moment he saw his need and received the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. To sum it up in one word, he had become a saint and he had become a saint instantly. Now here we have God's method of creating a saint. He looks not at the righteousness of the individual. He does not examine the works of that individual except to announce that they are condemned as coming from a source that is defiled. We rightly sing, he saw me ruined in the fall and loved me notwithstanding all. He saved me from my lost estate. His loving kindness, oh, how great. And it would be true and proper to add, when I was ruined, weak, and faint, he lifted me to be a saint. He looked at Christ, not at my race. His loving kindness flows from grace. The reason for this and the method by which it is done and the purpose of its doing are all answered in one word, Christ. When you look through a piece of blue glass, you see all things with a bluish tinge. When you look through a piece of yellow glass, you see all things in yellow. 
So it goes through the whole prism of colors. In exactly the same way, the word of God shows us that God the Father comes to look at us through Jesus Christ. And he sees us in the white holiness of our Lord. This is why we are called saints. We must not forget that the word saint is an exact synonym for holy one. You see, our English language is made up of thousands of words from the Anglo-Saxon and of many others from the Latin, which came over with William the Conqueror. At times, these words overlap, and we have two words for the same thing, one from each source. We've taken the names of our days from the German, Sun, Moon, Tua, Woden, Thor, Freya, Saturn. But our months have come from the Latin, Janus, Fevrius, Mars, and so on. There are many words that come from the different languages which so overlap that sometimes they are confused. Saint and holy must not be confused. The French say Saint Matthew, Saint Mark, Saint Luke, Saint John, Saint Bible, while the Germans say Heilige Schriften, Holy Matthew, Holy Mark, Holy Luke, Holy John. We have taken one from each language, and we say Saint John like the French and Holy Bible like the German. We call men saints, and we call things holy. Thus we speak of holy communion, holy desk, holy scripture, but Saint Matthew. The truth behind all this is that we have been counted as righteous, just, and holy in Christ, and thus we are called saints, which is the equivalent of the righteous ones, the justified ones, the holy ones. And the beautiful part of it is that Christ receives all of the glory, as I present these truths, there are some hearers who are conscious of the stormy presence of sin within their hearts. They look within and wonder if it's possible that they may call themselves saints, since they know that their thoughts and actions are not saintly. Too often they must cry out to God, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I am convinced of the fact that only the knowledge of the word of God and the application of that knowledge can bring a consistent life of victory to the individual Christian. The Lord said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's why we've spent the time in this study to see what the word of God teaches us about the perfection of our position in Christ. We must not allow our awareness of the sinful nature within us to cause us to doubt the perfection of our position in Christ. The first epistle to the Corinthians gives us a sharp contrast between the two, shows that they are not incompatible in the same life, and brings us to see that it's possible for us to know and experience day-by-day day maintenance of the dominating power of the life of Christ exalted within our being. It should be recalled that the Corinthian church was composed of men and women who had been living but a few months before in stark paganism. Corinth, we know from history and archaeology, was one of the port cities of Greece and a center of the cult of vice that surrounded the pagan temples. Suddenly the Spirit of God came among them in awakening power. There were many who believed and who received the gift of eternal life in Christ. Their position is described in the opening verses of the epistle. First, they're called the Church of God. In other words, they were members of that called-out body of believers, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known through them the manifold wisdom of God. Next, it is said that they were sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is really two statements. For the fact that they are declared to be in Christ Jesus includes much more than their sanctification. For in him they were blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly. This included their sanctification. That is to say, they had been positionally set apart by God as the object of his grace through whom he determined to manifest himself in the midst of this rebel world. Now, because of this positional sanctification, it is next announced that they are called saints. In the eyes of God, they were considered as his holy ones, made holy through the work of Christ. It is further stated that they had been the object of God's grace so that they were enriched by him in everything. That is to say that God had deposited to their account all the riches of his grace and that they were thus equipped by him with sufficient power and grace to supply their every need. Would it not be wonderful to live among such Christians? Would it not be delightful to be the pastor of a church composed of such believers? I dare to say that I do live among such Christians. I dare to say that I am pastor of such a church. I dare to say that the thousands of believers who may hear these words are Christians like the Corinthians, members of the called out body of Christ, sanctified in him, called saints, enriched by the grace of God in all utterance and in all knowledge, with Christ's witness confirmed in you, not lacking in any God-supplied gift. Some of you may think that I do not know you, but I do. The first nine verses of the epistle speak thus, of the standing of the believers in Christ. But then suddenly the 10th verse begins a picture that would seem to be of another group, but which is merely another view of the same people. Paul says to them, you are not speaking the same thing. There are divisions among you. Yes, contentions. We turn to the third chapter and read that those who are called brethren and who are said to be in Christ are also said to be carnal. It was impossible to feed them with the deep truths of the word of God because they could stand nothing but the milk of the word and were not able to take the meat. There were among them envying, strife, and divisions, so that it was difficult to tell from their walk whether they were saved or unsaved. The fifth chapter takes our breath away. One of the saints had actually been living in fornication. The following chapter reveals that their differences were so acute that they were quarreling one with the other before the heathen law court. The Spirit of God said that they were utterly at fault. The following chapters show that they were still frequenting the pagan temples with all their devil worship and carnality. The 11th chapter shows us that some of them even were drunken as they came to the table of the Lord's Supper. Now some of you recognize yourselves in some of these pictures. Here you see that which you know to be a true picture of your actual practice. Most indeed will be away from the grossest of these sins since 20 centuries of Christianity have given a flavor even to the godless civilization in which we live. And most of us have been brought up from youth to curb the passions which were encouraged in the frankly pagan world. The contrast between what we are in Christ and what we are in ourselves is even greater, for ours is the highest position which any creature can know in earth or heaven. God has given us a position above that of angels and the archangel. We are called sons of God and given title to a host of gifts which are ours the moment we have the life that is in Christ 
and which contains all our other gifts. For he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Thank God it is not necessary to live in accord with our condition. It is possible for us to know that condition altered, to realize day by day that our path shineth more and more to the perfect day, and to experience the reality of the good works which he has begun in us, being perfected until the day when he shall come to complete that perfection. That life is ours, and that position is ours as children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Sons? Yes. But to sum it all up in one word, we are in Christ. And our God and Father, we pray thee that this knowledge of all that thou hast given to us may be within us a power from the Holy Spirit to enable true believers to live lives that become those who have named thy name. If there should be any who listen who have not yet been born again, we ask thee that thou shalt accompany them with restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ, but upon thine own who truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of our high position in Christ, and unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now, till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.